We're so thankful for each and every individual that's gathered here this afternoon. We realize, of course, that the world offers so many opportunities and other decisions that might be made, but the fact that you've selected and chosen and, yay, carved out that part of your schedule to be with us on this Sunday afternoon speaks a great deal about your earnestness and your interest. And certainly it's our greatest desire to be pleasing, of course, unto God. Perhaps, as you're well aware, you may have noticed in the bulletin that the title of the lesson tonight is the very one on the wall to my left, the love of God. In fact, Andrew just led us in a song in which we sang about the love of God. We sang about the greatness of it. We sang about some of the particulars of it. And in fact, we're going to study also about it over the next several moments this evening. Perhaps it also is interesting to note it's a continuation of a series of lessons that we began several Sunday evenings ago at this point. But we began to ask the question about what's involved in knowing God. We learn in the Bible on that initial lesson how serious a matter it is to know God. For if one does not know Him, one cannot be saved. In fact, we read in Hebrews 5 verses 8 and 9, and we also read, in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 9, that those who do not know Him will be lost. And thus we begin a series of considerations about that very topic. On the first occasion, we learned about the Godhead. Knowing God involves knowing God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And we cast a spotlight upon the gospel, which is the message each one has brought. We learned in the second lesson about the name of God. We appreciated Yahweh and the sheer grandeur that goes with that name. We followed that up with a consideration of some of the attributes of Yahweh, His omnipotence, His omniscience, and yea, even the tremendous consideration of His omnipresence. One by one, as we've considered all of them, it brought us to last Sunday in which we gave some thought to His judgment. And we found it's according to the works that you and I, in fact, bring forth in life. Tonight, let's consider His love. May I say that over the next several Sundays, we will also be looking at some additional attributes of God, and probably your mind already considers a number of them, but we shall also look at some of them in due course as well. Tonight, what about His love? Surely, I think we'd all realize that to even speak of the love of God and try to contain it to, oh, 25 or maybe a half hour at most is certainly a grand task indeed. But you and I will use several verses of Scripture to point us in a direction of at least appreciating some of the features of that love of God. May I say that to do that, let's begin by looking at a text in 1 John chapter 4. And in fact, this in the very next slide is going to probably bring us to a text that immediately leaps to our mind as we think about God's love. In 1 John 4, verses 7 and 8, in the midst of this treatise in which the apostle of love, John, had much to say about God's love, he brought it to this particular and very interestingly specific task. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. Now at that point, let us just pause. We notice he already has affirmed that love is of God. But he isn't by any means finished, for he proceeds immediately to say, Everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. That immediately highlights that when you and I exhibit love in life, 
when we behave in a way corresponding to that which is of love, we are behaving in a fashion not unlike that which is of God. But yet it even thickens more when we arrive at verse 8. For there we notice, everyone that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. It's that latter part of that verse that is so interesting, don't you think? God is love. As you and I contemplate many of the tremendous godly features, you and I can think of many attributes of life that are certainly positive. One can think about faith and hope and love. And yet nowhere in the Bible does it say God is faith. And nowhere in the Bible does it say God is hope. Now it's true He is a God of hope, Romans 15, verses 13 and 14. And it is true He is a God that motivates faith to faith, Romans 1, verses 15, 16 and 17. But here He is stated to be God is love. As you think about the fact that God is love... Notice some of the features immediately that you and I must consider with some interest as we look at the Bible's development of that idea. Human love, as you and I appreciate it, sometimes has its problematic thoughts. It has its shortcomings. It has its imperfections. For instance, didn't Jesus say in Matthew 5 verse 46, as He spoke there in that Sermon on the Mount to some on that occasion... He, in fact, urged them to realize that sometimes human love is just a matter of doing to others what they've done to you. If you're good to me, I'll be good to you. But if you're not good to me, then I may not be good to you. That's the way many people look at it. And thus, sometimes love in the terms of the human family is just a rehearsal or repayment for what's been done to them. Jesus said our love must be much deeper than that. He said our love must be much richer than that to the point that we're even urged to love our enemies, commanded in that very way, Matthew 5, verses 45 and 46. That kind of love maybe challenges us to ask then about God's love, this ideal, perfect exposition of love. I've tried to present these comments. His love is ideal in that it's motivated not by anything otherwise than the the perfection that comes with Him. And furthermore, you'll notice, His goodness is such that it's motivated by that which is the best in relation to its object. God loves you and me, and that love demands, in fact, it even encourages us to appreciate He wants the best for us. Given his knowledge of the future and the fact he isn't limited by time, he knows then how you and I should behave now to make it better for us five years, ten years, yea, even thirty or more years from now. You and I are short-sighted in that regard. I often can look upon things and see this is the best for me now. But this decision might pay tremendously bad dividends in the future. God's love is ideal. If we thus can follow the prescriptions He has set forth regarding it, we would be far better to behave in a fashion in which we could always understand and appreciate all the blessings that come with that love. Look even beyond that with me. Sometimes human love can be somewhat empty. In 1 John 3, verse number 18, as again that apostle of love commented relative to this, he urged those who were his hearers on that occasion, do not allow your love 
to simply be in tongue or in word, but rather he admonished them, let your love be in deed and in action. And it's still true, sometimes individuals can profess a love, but yet when it comes time to carry out that which is the meaning of it and the actual benefit, it seems to be lacking. Reminds us a bit of the book of James, doesn't it? As he, in fact, on that occasion spoke of faith in James chapter 2, verses 13 and following, he commented that an individual who is destitute of the needs of life, such as clothing or food, how much good does it do for another individual to say, Be thou clothed and filled, and yet do nothing to aid the poor individual? Faith, of course, must be manifested by love. Galatians 5 verse 6. That manifestation leads us to note the bottom statement. I tried to find a statement that I thought that could summarize perhaps the love of God in a somewhat concise fashion. I don't know how successful I've been, but it did seem to me like this has many of the attributes in it. As you and I contemplate, bottom of that slide, love in its association to God, this seems to be the epitome of it. It is the selfless devotion resulting from the conscious decision and evaluation with its goal being the ultimate good of its object. As you and I then seek to employ or manifest that kind of love in our lives, that is the ultimate consideration of it. The selfless devotion of this being, again prompted by the nature of what is the good of its object. Now might we at least pause for a moment and ask, what are the dimensions of God's love? Well, you and I could easily race to passages like Ephesians 3, where in that condition, verses 17 and following, identify a very interesting set of comments. They're the love of Christ. You may recall one of the features of Paul's tremendous presentation. The love of Christ, he quickly affirmed, what about the length and the breadth and the depth and the height of it? You and I know that when we build a building or we construct some piece of furniture, we know what its physical dimensions are. But yet in that instance, have you ever wondered, what is the height of God's love? What is the depth of it? What about its width? Could you and I say anything about its breath? I would say that with the remainder of the lesson tonight, we will look at a few of those dimensions and make some applications relative to a few features of your life and mine. The other passage I've listed there for your consideration is in the 8th chapter of the Roman letter. It is true that there we have such a tremendous anthem of greatness as it relates to God's love Let's apply that briefly by noting its beginning in verses 35 and going from there. You notice in verse number 35 of Romans, the 8th chapter, we find that Paul, as he addressed the church in Rome, reminded them at the very center chapter of this book of the greatness of the love of God. And he did it like this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword... As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature 
shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. May I submit that that's an amazing commentary on the dimensions of the love of God. Nothing, nothing, he says, can separate you and me from the love of God, which is found in Christ. And did you notice some of the features of that inspired list? Not life, not death, not principalities, not powers, not any of these tremendous realities. None of them can separate you and me from the love of God as it is found and exhibited in Christ Jesus our Lord. Maybe it is for that reason that a fair amount of our discussion will point the spotlight upon Christ Jesus. But may I say, as we move in that direction, probably there's another passage that utterly came from the lips of Jesus Himself. And that passage in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 16, is the one now to which I would direct your attention. John chapter 3, verse number 16. That particular passage is fairly early in the book of John, of course. And you may recall with me that Nicodemus was involved with our Master in some interesting conversation beginning in verse 1 of John chapter 3. And in the midst of that conversation, we remember that Jesus very pointedly and very straightforwardly came to this observation. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And although you and I have no doubt often reflected upon that passage, you do notice with me how much it speaks about the love of God. Thus you and I, let's develop it like this. For God so loved. Although it's true that word so is only a two-letter word, you and I might notice it is an adverb. In English, and the corresponding word in Greek is exactly the same. It's an adverb. Thus, it modifies either an adjective or a verb. And you notice in this case, notice it modifies the verb loved. God didn't just love. He so loved. And the soul is a highlight to the greatness, the magnificence, the tremendous feature of that love of God. God so loved. There are some who in our world have often had ideas that God wound up this universe at some far distant time in the past and He set it in motion and He just stands off at a distance and watches it. He really doesn't have that much great concern and care for it. He just lets the human family do what we want. But this says God so loved the world. It's not that He is merely distant and uninvolved. It's not merely that He is uncompassionate and uncaring. He has the greatest desirable good for that which is His object, the world. And there He wasn't talking about the inanimate globe. He was talking about His human creatures, you and me. God so loved the world. You'll notice in light of that love, the Bible has much to say, of course, about the details of it. Because there are many who might argue that, well, sure, we're a prized creation of His. It's fitting that He loves us. But those who would so quickly leap to that conclusion miss one point. Although we are His prized creation, we chose to rebel against Him. We chose to be disobedient. We chose to transgress His will. And there we chose, of course, to sin, just like even Adam did. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23 
Wasn't it Solomon who in the long ago affirmed in 1 Kings 8, 46, There is no man that sinneth not. When you and I recollect then that sin is the transgression of God's law, every one of us have chosen then to disobey Him. We've chosen to transgress His will. Notice then what Paul stated to the Romans in light of that observation. In Romans 5, beginning in verse 6, when you and I think then about this love of God, we appreciate that it's stated like this. So simply highlight verse 8. But God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You may notice, and, you've, and I have often commented about it, that His love was directed to you and to me when we were undeserving, when we were in sin. It's not that we were deserving, and as a result, He was obligated to it. When you and I were in sin. He loved me still and He loved you still. Doesn't that say so much about this love of God? Maybe in light of that you'll notice then what that text went on to say. For God so loved the world, what did He do? That He gave. The verb gave, of course, highlights the initiative on God's part. It's not that we insisted He do it. It's not that we offered the reality of making it so. It was He who made the choice and the volition He gave. And you'll notice He didn't just give any old gift. It says He gave His only begotten Son. I would ask that you notice in passing an interesting thought about that very phrase. God, in one way, at least has many sons. According to John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, all of us who are Christians are the children of God. All of us who have been baptized into Christ are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, Romans 8, verses 14 and following. But you'll notice there's an interesting adjective here. He didn't just say gave His own Son, or rather did gave His Son. It says His only begotten Son. That phrase, only begotten, is literally from a Greek word that identifies a uniqueness, a one of a kind, one for which there literally is not another. Let me ask that you contemplate a bit, just a bit about that thought. Suppose there was a certain entity and you literally only have one of them. In fact, maybe there's only one that exists. Maybe this particular very, very sentimental and special item, maybe your great-grandfather fixed it and there's only one of them. What if an individual desired to have it? Maybe the person for one reason or another even needed it. How quick would you and I be to give it to them? Now, if there's many of these items, there would be really nothing special about the gift. But there was, if there were only one of them, and you and I were to selflessly give it for the benefit of the, of the other, that would be a tremendous statement of our concern for the other individual. God gave the prized possession of the only begotten Son. And He gave it, you'll notice with me in 1 John 2 verse 2, with a tremendous benefit that it is His blood that can cleanse all sins. For, notice, He is the propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Even those individuals who are murderers, and rapists, and kidnappers, and others, Christ's blood was shed for them too, just like for you and me. 
What a statement about the selfless devotion of God and the interest that they might have opportunity to be saved. God gave His only begotten Son. The verse still isn't finished, for you'll notice at the bottom that those who believe in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It does come with, of course, a serious obligation, doesn't it? I've merely asked you to notice the way I wrote it like this. If that love is accepted, if that love that is offered through the agency of Christ by God, if it's accepted, eternal life. Everlasting life is the promised end or consequence of it. By the same token, you'll notice if that love, though, is rejected, if it is, in fact, not received, Jesus Himself said that person will perish. Thus, may I suggest to you that this love under consideration has a tremendous extent of range. If it's accepted eternal life, if it's not, of course, eternal death to perish. May you notice with me at the bottom then what a tremendous question something like that suggests. Think about for a moment unrequited love. I use that word carefully. Think about individuals who, in fact, have so much consideration and so much love and compassion for another. Maybe young individuals. Maybe you've witnessed perhaps a family like that. It's very sad. Maybe a parent doesn't particularly love a certain child very much. That child begs for the mother or the father's attention, and all the parent does is push the child away. It breaks your heart. You'll notice, what about those who in fact push God's love away? God has given the greatest gift of all, the only begotten Son. Thanks be unto God for His unspeakable gift, 2 Corinthians 9, 15. And yet there are those who push God away. Not interested in your love, not interested in the other features you've offered. And it's somewhat sad to contemplate the full tragedy of that, of that thing. Maybe as you and I close that particular slide, it does bring us to perhaps the next natural consideration. We highlighted the fact that God is love. We then from that motivated to its expression in the giving of Jesus. We realize that our Savior left the great bounds of heaven. And as He came to this place, often you and I call it a low ground of sin and sorrow. He tabernacled in the flesh, John 1.14. As He did so, He ultimately made that slow and trudging walk to the cross where there He allowed human beings to nail Him to it. And He gave His life for the well-being even of those who had nailed Him to that cross. Wasn't it Jesus who Himself could say in Luke 23.34, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do? But now as you have all that in mind, it's at this point that in many instances, I suppose many in our world would stop the sermon. They've said all that they feel needs to be said about the love of God. It is sweet and positive and beautiful. It offers to mankind the hope of salvation, and that love is so extensive, bringing blessings and rewards. But the Word of God goes a step further. And it highlights it under the banner of the thought of commandments. Here is where many, in fact, would digress and go a completely different way and say, what does that have to do with God's love? Well, let us allow the Bible to speak for itself. 
In fact, as you start this slide with me, you and I race at this point again to that book of 1 John. In 1 John, we find several associations between the love of God on the one hand and commandments He has given us on the other. Let's develop that as follows. In 1 John 2, verse number 5, it reads like this. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Although it might be true that many in our world would stumble over that thought, it's rather plain in its presentation. It again says, But whoso keepeth his word... And that word keep means to obey. It means to, in fact, live in accordance to. He thus says that whoso keepeth his word in that person, namely the one that keeps the word of God, in him is God's love perfected. Now that word perfected means, as you can see on the slide to my left, it means to make perfect or to fulfill. We are already beginning to see that that love of God of which the Scriptures so often speak, the nature of its expression in the life of Christ, well, sure enough, Christ did give His life and shed His blood for the benefit of the human family. But that does not mean that every member of the human family will receive the great and tremendous spiritual blessings that go with it. That, you see, is conditional. And here we begin to see in rather specific terms and tones the features of that condition. That individual who keeps God's commandments is the one in whom God's love is perfected. That is to say, that person has reached a fuller maturity in light of the love of God because he keeps God's commandments. As you think about other ways that John has presented that to us, isn't it fascinating to contemplate that love of God housed in the keeping of these commandments? I frankly admit, meaning our world would perhaps very much disagree with us on this. But they're disagreeing with the Bible if they do. For I would ask, as you turn over just two pages, at least it's two in my Bible, in 1 John 5, verse number 3, let us look at another passage. On that occasion it reads, For this is the love of God. Now, although it isn't the case this is an English lesson, nonetheless it seems to me very strong at least making some observations about the grammar. This is the love of God. So that is a sentence and the word this is the subject. You'll notice that is is the verb. And as you appreciate it, the love is in fact the predicate noun attached to the word this. In other words, whatever it is that this refers to, it is identically equated to the love. Whose love? It says love of God. In other words, by that simple sentence alone, you and I observe that we are seeing a description of the love of God. Now that opening sentence has highlighted its presentation. Where does the inspired writer take us? This is the love of God that we keep His commandments. And there we have it. In other words, the love of God, the very word this, the pronoun referring to it, this is that love of God. Now what is it, John? To keep His commandments. Thus, if we keep His commandments, we can thus appreciate that love of God manifested and exhibited. And if we fail to keep those commandments, 
Of course, the opposite state of affairs is true. We have nowhere near appreciated the perfection that comes with that love of God. No wonder in light of those things might I ask you to notice. It's not as though Jesus Himself had not at least directed thoughts along that line. In John 14, 15, If you love me, keep my commandments. Now, there are times when the Lord's commandments are things which seem so direct and easy and straightforward. And there are other times when clearly they're more demanding in the sense that repentance and other changes of life are needed. The fact remains, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You notice that to love Christ, since Christ is one of the members of the Godhead, that that would correlate to the love of God and if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now, in addition to that text in John 14, 15, we remember in 1 John 2, verse number 4, again, same little book of 1 John. The writer on that occasion put it like this, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Keeping God's commandments is so remarkably associated with the love of God. If you and I love God, we will keep His commandments. And that text in 1 John 5, 3 goes on to affirm His commandments are not grievous. That word grievous means heavy. It means burdensome. It means weighty. As we highlighted a moment ago, our motivation in love for Him should lead us then with eagerness and excitement to keep His commandments. We understand the devil does not look with favor upon keeping God's commandments because he doesn't want us to love God. He doesn't want us to be motivated by a deep-seated devotion and dedication in love to Him. The devil wants us to follow our way. No wonder through the prophet Jeremiah, God said, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps, Jeremiah 10, 23. Surely, in light of all those things, the very bottom of that slide then has brought us to this realization. There seems to be one other overwhelmingly strong passage that relates to this, and it was the one read for the lesson text tonight. The little one-chapter book of Jude nestled near the end of the New Testament. So far, having identified the commandments of God and the fact that our love for Him manifests itself in keeping them, no wonder then Jude puts it like this. Verses 20 and 21 of the book of Jude. Perhaps a small amount of background would be beneficial to us. The book of Jude, again in only one chapter, is a very strong book. Maybe it'd be wise to take a deep breath as you start reading the book of Jude. Jude, in fact, is very fierce in many ways. In fact, in about a verse and a half, he'll use the word ungodly seven times. With all that as a background, he challenges those who were his hearers and readers to recognize that just as surely as some Old Testament individuals fell away from their faithfulness, he warns you and me to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all time delivered to the saints. Verse number 3. As he builds up to it, he now puts it like this in verses 20 and 21. But ye, beloved, note the contrast. There were those that were unfaithful and there were those who were motivated by false teachers and who chose to follow them. 
But in contrast, he says, But you, beloved, building up yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. He immediately highlights then that these who wish to build up their faith, he says, they certainly will be individuals of prayer. And then verse number 21 is this commandment. Keep yourselves in the love of God. My suspicion is many in our world would have no understanding of the thrust of that verse. Many think God's love is just an automatic, magical thing given to everybody and there's nothing that you and I need to do to receive it, but that's not right. Here Jude writes, keep yourself in it. There's something I must do and something you must do to experience and appreciate the benefits of that great love of God. It isn't just automatically with all of its benefits given. It's offered, but you and I must do something to receive it. You and I must keep ourselves in the love of God. Surely then in this slide, might I ask you to note the language. Jude, by inspiration, wrote it, keep yourselves. That word keep is imperative in its thrust in the original language. Not only is it imperative, you'll notice he says, keep yourselves. A beautiful reflexive pronoun. Thus, there's something I must do and something you must do in order to be the great recipients of the fullness of that love of God. Surely then we now notice what's involved in keeping God's commandments. If I don't keep them, and if you and I don't keep them, although Christ died, we'll not receive the tremendous spiritual benefits and blessings. No wonder it was written in Ephesians 1 verse 3 that all spiritual blessings are in Christ, and yet we must be obedient. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Are you in the love of God, and am I in that love of God tonight? It's a sobering question, isn't it? The entire universe, and yea, all that exists even outside its bounds, is a testimony to the greatness of our God. But you'll notice when Christ died on the cross, He made an offer to the human family that all who will come to Him through Christ can and shall be saved. Hebrews 7.25 But therein lies the matter. Those who won't come to Him, those who won't, keep themselves in the love of God, will thus, in that unrequiting of His love, be eternally lost. Are you saved tonight? Are you walking in the blessed light of the love of God? If you and I are in it, may we continue to walk in that faithfulness all throughout life. But if you're not in that love tonight, there could be two perhaps easily easy observations. Maybe you, though you have reached an age of knowing wrong from right, you've never yet been brought into Christ. You've never been baptized into Him. Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27. Tonight, we'd be delighted to assist you in your initial obedience to the gospel. Angels in heaven will rejoice over your decision. Luke 15, verse 7. If we could be of assistance to you tonight... We would only ask that you let us know the way we can help you. You, of course, must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins, Luke 13, 5. You must, of course, confess His name before men. We found the Ethiopian eunuch doing that in Acts 8, 37. And, of course, you must be baptized into Christ. If you have attended to that need in life, but you have forgotten the love of God... 
Oh, it was a distant fact in the recesses of your mind and heart, but you weren't living with the imperative thought of keeping yourself in it. Maybe you became careless and lackadaisical. Maybe you became unfocused and decentered. Why not come back to your first love tonight? There's a group of people here who'd be thrilled to pray for you. We'd be honored to do it too. And as we approach God in that way, He's promised to hear prayers like that and forgive you of any and all sin in your life, and you could be reinstated to a position and a place of faithfulness in which you could walk in the love of God. After all, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Romans 8 verse 1. This evening, if you at this moment find yourself outside the fullness of the blessings of the love of God, don't remain in that condition. But at this moment of invitation, why not come while together we stand and while we sing?